Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowblassingame, and I am your host. Today, I will be interviewing Kimberly Russell. Kimberly's rock bottom was a serious suicide attempt that left her with a collapsed lung in a coma on life support. She got sober on July 2nd, 2017 at the age of 27. Since that time, Kimberly has walked through losing multiple relationships, her sponsor relapsing, a sexual assault, overcoming addiction to self-harm, sex and love, codependency, an eating disorder, and losing a job of four years. Her saving grace through every one of these experiences has been spiritual growth and dedication to working a 12-step program. Kimberly wouldn't change a single experience she's had because it has empowered her to discover her passion for helping others. It has forced her to be constantly self-reflective. It has pushed her to reach out for help and realize that there has always been something reaching back. All right, episode 33, please enjoy and let's do this. Kim, thank you so much for being here, coming to the podcast booth. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Thank you for allowing my giant dog to be here. (laughs) He's a sweetheart. (laughs) He's he's sleeping. He's a sleepy baby now. Yeah. So um, we were just talking about you grew up in Anaheim in OC, so you stayed in OC. Yes. And you are sober. You got sober couple years ago, right? Yeah, 27. I have two and a half years. Awesome. Right now. Congratulations. Thank you. Awesome. When's three? Will be July 2nd okay. of 2020. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So tell me, like, from what I understand, you had a, like, a super loving home family, really, no- like, relative, whatever normal is, you had that normal family, yes. which I think is a really great story because we hear on here all the traumatic upbringings that people have. And I think it's awesome because there's so many people who are like, I didn't have anything. What, what What's wrong with me? You yeah. know, almost like nothing to grasp onto and say, this is what happened. This is why I did this. And it almost makes it more frustrating yeah. because yeah. I have nothing to point to totally. and say to justify my behavior right. and to explain it away. I remember actually wishing that something terrible mm-hmm. would happen in my life so that it would give me an excuse to yeah. do what I was doing. Totally. I that's and and I think so often that like people it's like I, I know people who did like grasp for things mm-hmm. where they would grasp for things to happen because otherwise it's like, oh no, it's just me in my head. Yes. So what was what was your childhood like? It was very peaceful, a lot of love. I have, you know, two parents who are still married to this day, who still love each other very much. I've never seen my, you know, I've never seen either of them call each other a name. Um, You know, when they would get into an argument or a disagreement, they would politely excuse themselves from the room and then go have a conversation until they felt like they were on the same page and then they would come back and talk about it. So I had a really beautiful example of what a loving and functional relationship looks like. And I have an older sister and two younger brothers. We were all homeschooled together. Um, You know, we were middle class, so we never 
you know, we, we had clothes on our back. We had a roof over our head. You know, we never had to worry about where's this meal going to come from. Right. And we were all homeschooled together, so we were very close. There was a lot of support, a lot of, you know, sibling time together, you know, parent time together. And it was just a very, you know, normal upbringing. Uh, they were very conservative, so they did... I felt very controlled growing up. I felt that, you know, I was very aware of the fact that they were filtering everything that mm. was coming through okay. to me and what I was exposed to. And so that was something that I, from a very young age, did not like and that I pushed against very hard. Why were you aware of that? I'm not really even sure. I'm somebody who is very sensitive to feeling controlled yeah. and feeling manipulated. Yeah. And I have been since I can remember. Yeah. And I just noticed when, you know, they would fast forward through parts right, of right. a movie, okay. like okay. if there was sex in it or if yeah. there was, you know, the okay. F word, they would, yeah. you know, say, no, you know, we're going to fast forward through this part. You can't watch it. Or my friends would be going to watch, you know, Got it. Okay. they would watch the TV show Friends and my parents would be like, no, you can't watch that. Right. Okay. And so was that part of their decision to homeschool you guys? That was part of it. It was mostly because of my older sister. She was reading by the time she would have been going into kindergarten. And my mom went to the public school and they were kind of like, yeah, we want them to know their ABCs yeah. and to know mm -hmm. how to count to 10. And my mom was like, my daughter's reading. And so she wanted to be able to have a skip grades. And so yeah. that was really the main reason. But then also... Um, you know, when they started becoming more religious, that was kind the of an added benefit yeah. of it. Yeah. 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 And then so they homeschooled you guys through eighth grade, right? Yes. And so but then you went into high school. Yeah. I went into regular school. How was that transition? For me, it was very, very difficult. I was terrified of letting people know how innocent I was right. and how little experience I had and all of the things that they were doing. And so I just started lying about everything. I would make up stories to mm, fit in. Yeah. Uh, I, I literally changed my identity based on whoever was around. I had no sense of self and I immediately started trying to expose myself to all the things that I feel like I missed out on. What did your siblings do? Did it? They their transition was very normal. I think my sister experienced a little. They they all experienced some mild bullying, but other than that, it was not. It was nothing like what I created mine to be. So, do you think that yours was based on who you went and sought out, or I think that was a big part of it. There were things that I would do and, and instigate, and I didn't at the time. I, you know, I'm 14 years old, and yeah. I, you know, struggle with social interaction, and I didn't realize I was doing it. But, you know, there was, like, a girl who approached me and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in this guy. You know, can you introduce me to him and set us up? And I you know, responded by going to her friends and talking badly about her and being like, oh my gosh, can you believe that she asked me to do this? And the, and she's this, you know, water polo player and right, she right. comes and, you know, she beats the crap out of me. Right. And I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh, I'm this innocent victim. Right. And like, no, I went to her friends and I talked badly right. about her and I created this whole situation. But like, I didn't understand that. Right, right. You didn't know the rules. Exactly. Like, you didn't know the rules of engagement. Yeah. Which would be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting, you know, when we were when you were talking a little bit ago, I was asking, you said that your siblings didn't mind being homeschooled, but no. you hated it. And uh, we talked about how, like, you would have hated school because you would have hated anywhere that you were. Yes. What 
I, I obviously relate to that tremendously, which was like anywhere I was, I felt like shit. Mm-hmm. that just that was how being in my body, being in my skin was that, you know, when did you start to have that feeling or realization? The earliest that I remember it is probably fifth grade, but it was just that feeling of I will be okay once I reach this destination. Right. Um, I never wanted to be where I was. It was always I need something else or I need somewhere else to feel okay. Yeah. And did your parents notice that about you? They did. They thought that it was just a phase originally and they... I don't know exactly how young I was when they started kind of looking into options that might help me, but they, you know, because I would fight and fight to go to regular junior high school, and they said that, you know, we know out of all the kids, you more than anyone needs to be homeschooled until high school. So they definitely knew that I needed, you know, I needed to be where I was. Do you think that that saved you from using earlier? I think it saved me from using earlier, yeah. I'm I'm sure that I would have, you know, gotten into things sooner if yeah. I had known where to go or how right. to get there. Right, right, because you would have been seeking. Yeah. And how did, when did you seek out, you know, a drugs and alcohol or, or, or some sort of outside coping mechanism first? I was at a party my freshman year and I was with some girls from the volleyball team and they we, they had a party and I got there and I look around and everybody's drinking out of red cups and I was like oh my god what how how do I do this and I look over and there's a liquor cabinet that's open and I just see you know a bunch of bottles of alcohol and so I just go and I pour an entire red cup full of just straight aged tequila oh no and I don't know that people are, you know, they mix drinks or that right, they, right. they, I don't know what's going on. What do and you know about alcohol? Then? I knew nothing. You My, just knew it was alcohol. I just knew it was alcohol. You, and did you know it was intoxicating? You must. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah no, yeah. I definitely knew that. You know, I'd seen it portrayed yeah. in movies. Okay, and I'd okay. heard friends talk about their okay, experiences. Okay. And it was something I was definitely, you know, I knew that I wanted to try it. Okay, okay. And then it was presented to me. And so I went, I filled up the whole cup. Oh, my God. I... Drank it in probably 15 minutes. Oh, no. And then I started to notice the change. And I started (laughs) to notice my head get really quiet. And for the first time, you know, I felt like I fit in my skin. I stopped caring and obsessing over everything. I didn't even realize how loud my head was until it was quiet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so as soon as I felt that, I wanted more. So what do I do? I go and I pour another full red cup of aged tequila. And it's absolutely disgusting. I'm like choking it down, like in the corner, trying not to let anyone see the reaction that I'm having. And by the end of the night, I blacked out. I don't remember a whole lot. I remember walking around on the top of the sofa and yelling at people. That's about all I remember. The fact that you remember anything after the first cup is and having never drank before. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that's that's impressive or yeah. not? Whatever. I don't. I don't <laughs> impressive, know. Impressive, yeah, concerning. Yeah, it's cons- a combination. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I I did get alcohol poisoning. Oh yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, that, then your body was yes. responding in kind. Okay. Um, I <laughs> I threw up all over myself. So my friends dragged me out onto the driveway. They yeah. sprayed me down with the garden hose, right. and then they dragged me back inside, Thank you, and friends. they left me dry heaving on the bathroom floor. Right. And that was that yeah. was my first drug. And. Uh, 
like when you got home, did anybody know or like how did you play that whole situation off? No, nobody knew. I stayed the night there. And okay. No, uh, they didn't notice anything. I woke up and I said, I want to do that again every <laughs> single day for the rest <laughs> of my life. I love this. Yeah, that's that's the the beauty of the alcoholic response, yes. which is like on the outside that lo- sounds and looks like the most horrendous experience. Mm-hmm. But to us... The quiet of the head that we didn't even know was that loud, that like that experience, we just, I mean, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like, oh my God, it'll just, it'll make it stop. Mm -hmm. And that's why in your story, I heard you say that you believe you were born an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that's the same for me. I think that, you know, my parents have asked me so many times, what could we have done differently to have prevented this, to have changed it? And I, you know, I tell them nothing. Yeah. I think this is, I think, I believe I was born to be an alcoholic. I was born one and nothing could have changed that. The interesting thing about you being born into a, you know, a a normal, regular, whatever the words we want to use to describe calm family life is, you know, on the one hand, like, yes, there's nothing to blame it on. So it, it feels like, oh, there's something wrong with me. But the flip side of that coin is when you do have trauma in your life, it's like, oh, it was as a re- like there's this urge to blame it on the trauma. Like, I, mm-hmm. I you know, I have early trauma and but I don't think and I've said this before, but I don't think that's what caused my mm-hmm. alcoholism. Like, I don't think it helped it, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, I think it may have been the reason why I started so young or, you know, whatever it was. But, you know, on the flip side is that there's this idea when you have all this stuff, well, of course she drank. Mm. And I, when I think back to how I was thinking, like my thinking, that piece was always there. Yeah, absolutely. That was my experience. Yeah. Too. And you, and you're validating that, which is like, yeah, you can, you don't need you don't need a lot of trauma to still have the same thoughts and not want to be in your skin. No, definitely not. Yeah. So, did you drink that way? Did you continue? What was the that was that was the first drink yeah. experience? So, going forward, did you figure out how to drink? I did. I immediately more economically at least. <laughs> yes. I started asking friends at school uh, who had older siblings and I would give them money Mm -hmm. and have them, you know, bring me alcohol when I would go into a store with my family. I'd bring my backpack and I'd, you know, throw a handle in there and I would just steal alcohol. And I started going through our medicine cabinet to find anything that would change the way that I feel. I think you know, the first, I did, you know, cough syrup. There was mm-hmm. some leftover painkillers and I, you know, I was, I was smoking cigarettes and, you know, looking for men, for attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I was self-harming. Really anything that would change the way that I felt. Who know did, like, did your family, given how put together your family sounds, And this big transition, like if I'm your mom and you are trans and I know what I know, what sounds like she knew about you, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be watching closely to see the transition, right? Especially if I was monitoring all the things that were coming in and that kind of stuff. Did she notice or did, was there any, or like, were you just really good at hiding all of those things from her? I lied about everything, which was originally how I started getting away with it, but in time, they did start, to, you know, they noticed the self-harm. They sat me down. They talked to me about it. And I told them, I don't know why I did it. And honestly, looking back, that's the truth. I had no idea why I was doing the things that I was doing. What were you doing? Um, I, wa- I was cutting myself with razors. 
I was, you know, I would drink alcohol in the morning before school out of a water bottle. I'd bring it with me to school. I would, you know, smoke weed on lunch breaks. So this was not social. No, it was never. It was never social. Uh, I would I would endure people's company if that's what <laughs> totally. I had to do totally. to get what I needed. Right. But, but you had no, like, desire for it to be social. It, I mean, it made it easier for me to be social. So for me, right. I was actually relatively social when I was intoxicated. When I was sober, I wanted nothing to do with people. But once I was intoxicated, then all of a sudden I'm engaged in class. I'm, you know, interacting with people. I feel like I'm connecting. I'm not so afraid of them. And everything just felt easier. Yeah. Now with the self-harm, did that just pop into your head one day or? (laughs) No, I saw, I don't even remember what show it was. It was something on MTV and I saw... I saw somebody self-harming on the show and I was just kind of, I saw it and I was curious. I was like, I want to know what that'll do. Yeah. I want to know why that person's doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure your parents were freaked out. Yes. They were terrified. And I don't really remember the ages at which everything happened, but eventually they did have me start going and seeing a therapist because they were just at a loss as to what to do. Was that the catalyst? I think they found this. I think it was a combination of self-harm and finding cigarettes on me. And I don't even know if at this point they knew that I was drinking. I don't think they did. Right. Uh, I think it was just those two things. And then they'd caught me in multiple lies. They'd caught me. You know, my mom walked up. Uh, she was running around the high school campus looking for me and she walks around the corner and sees me on the steps making out with this guy and she just loses it and, (laughs) you know, drags me into Uh, the car and, you know, they would ground me. I was grounded for all of high school, but I would sneak out. I would lie. I'd say, well, I have to go to the school project and do this. And then I would run off and go wherever I wanted and I'd sneak out at night. And so most of it was they, it wasn't so in their face. Right. Okay. And, uh, your siblings, what was their reaction to? Did they go to school with you? Uh, they, no. So they, my sister went to Troy, which was a magnet school. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to go to Troy, so I went to the local public school. And so, and then I, I was transferred to a Lutheran school sophomore year just because of all the problems I was having. And my brother didn't start going until my senior year, at which point everything was already, they knew and everything was completely out of control. But my sister's initial reaction when she found out, I think she thought it was just normal. Yeah. And I think she, I think she drank with me maybe once or twice, but she was, you know, so wrapped up in her her studies and trying to get into Columbia and, you know, everything she was doing that I don't, I don't think there was a lot of time or thought put into it. Yeah, yeah, probably normal for the the age range. So when, I mean, I was going to say, like, when did it spiral out of control? But the two cups, the two red solo cups on day one is kind of, that's pretty out of control day one. Yeah, my drinking and using was never normal. It was never social, and I never had any desire to control it. Yeah, yeah. So how did that change? Or what, how, how did you, so you get through high, you graduated high school Mm -hmm. and you said that by your senior year, the the cat was out of the bag. Yeah. I was dealing drugs by the end of high school. I, you know, I started, you know, it it became an everyday thing for me. And the crazy thing was I was playing really high level of volleyball. That's right. Okay. So you, you were playing volleyball start was that starting freshman year starting freshman year and then I played you know I played on varsity in the high school and then I played on club teams and so I I think to be honest I think that's what 
helped me keep it together and and stay at least mildly functional for a period of time because I had to physically perform in order to, you know, that was my freedom to me because that's what was going to make me go to college and get me there. And that's what I wanted. I thought, well, once I get to college, I'll be happy. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I think I held it together and, you know, I would play and I'd be intoxicated, but I wouldn't overdo it because right. I knew I needed to, you know, and I, knew, I knew I had things I had to get done. Did the other volleyball players know you were intoxicated? Some of them did. Yeah. Yeah. I was careful with who I let know. And yeah. I would, and then the people who I wanted to know, I intentionally let them know because yeah. I felt like I would be more accepted. And I thought it was funny yeah. that I could play when I yeah. was, you know, really high or, yeah. you know, really stoned or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. Yeah. It was definitely was not, um, there was no, like, none of the normal social high school piece that you could say like, well, I'm just in high school. This is just not, you know, mm-hmm. like we're just partying. Like it just never was that for you. Yeah, no, I was doing, you know, cocaine yeah. in the bathroom and I would, you know, I'd take too many pills and then I'd have to run out of class and I'd be throwing up in the hallway. Just, you know, not, not normal behaviors. So then did the volleyball get you to the college that you wanted? Yes, it did. And I I went to Biola University, which is a small Christian school. And I still to this day don't know why I chose to go there because you have to sign a contract saying that you won't drink, you won't do drugs, you won't (laughs) smoke during the time that you're there. And I have no idea why. I I remember I liked the coach and I liked the girls. Did you think that maybe by signing that, that would turn things around? No, because I had no intention of of stopping. Because my parents sat me down the summer before I went to school and they said that you can either go away to school Uh, you know, because we're not paying for you. So it's your choice or you can go to rehab. But if you get kicked out of school for doing all the things that you're doing, you don't have somewhere to come home to. We're done. They already cut me off financially. They were already, you know, you know, putting things in place to try and protect me from myself. Right. So you go to this Christian university Mm -hmm. and you you sign a contract that you're not going to do any of the things you do daily. Yep. Okay. So how does that work out? Not well. I I actually lasted longer than I thought that I would. I was suspended, you know, I was there for three years. I was suspended twice for drinking. I was, you know, got in trouble for getting other girls on the team drunk. I was, again, selling drugs there. I was, you know, involved in, you know, the underground party scene. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never went to class. I would show up to practice, but I never went to class. I was on academic probation. And by the middle of my junior year, I drunkenly crashed my car into a, a set of Metrolink tracks up in central L.A. Uh, with a drunk freshman girl in my car and had the cops called. And I didn't get a DUI, which was remarkable. Wow. But, um, you know, my parents had to come get me and it got spread around. And then for the school, that was their last straw. They said, we're done. Um, you need to go find somewhere else to go. And you were a junior? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they let me finish they let me finish out the year, and then I transferred to Cal State Fullerton, also on a full ride for volleyball. And that with I, the less structure I had in my life, the worse that I got. Because mm. um, I'm somebody that I will maintain. I will I will check off the boxes that I need to check off to stay where I am, but right. I'm going to continue to do whatever I want in the meantime. Right. And so Fullerton got worse, and by you know that season, I, I was so skinny, I, I couldn't really even play volleyball. I started the first, I think, like two or three weeks of the season, and then after that, I sat on the bench the rest of my senior year because I couldn't play. I was throwing up. I would mm-hmm. pass out at practice. And then by the end of that semester, I was living out of the locker room, 
smoking meth and heroin. I would steal bikes off of campus to get places. I would steal from the girls on the team. And I just, I was in my mind, I was like, I'm living my best life. This is what I've always wanted. And I was really content. And I was sleeping on a couch in the locker room. How did you get in touch? Were you looking for meth and heroin or just was part of like the next phase of what people were doing or? I I don't really know how it started. I think it happened very gradually, gradually and very naturally. I um, It was an organic process. It was. I got to meth organically. <laughs> I don't know about you, but. Um, it just, I, as my drug use progressed, the people who I was spending yeah. time with before that started to you know, pull away from me. Right, right, and right. so then I started to pull more towards the people who yeah. were drinking and doing cocaine like I did and then yeah. spend a little more time and then they let you know, oh, actually, this is what we're doing on the side totally. over here if you want to come into this back right. room. And that was kind of how it right, started. Right. I think I probably... I was always ready to go in whatever back exactly. room you had. <laughs> yeah. So, it, yeah, it was something... I don't think I sought it out, but in my actions, that's exactly where it took me. Right, right. You just kept following. So... Question. Mm-hmm. I tried to deal drugs. Mm-hmm. I am a terrible <laughs> drug dealer. Now, I thought that, you know, drug dealing equals making a lot of money equals paying for your drugs, right? That was that was the calculation that mm-hmm. I did in my head. You were homeschooled, so you probably had better math skills than I did. <laughs> but what made you decide to drug deal and was that a good career move for you. <laughs> What's funny is actually by accident. So there was a guy my sophomore year of high school, there was a guy in my art class who was in like his third June or his third senior year. <laughs> he took like six years to graduate high school. And so I get in contact with him and it turns out, you know, he can get me literally any drug I want. And so I'm <laughs> like, this him. is awesome. <laughs> I'm, you Marriage know, material. I kept in close contact with him after yes. he graduated. And then my friends started to here and I have no idea how this started to spread. I told a couple, you know, I, I I overheard somebody saying, "Oh, I'm like trying to get ecstasy," and I was like, "Oh, I can get that for you." And then they'd be like, "Oh, what else can you get me?" I said, "Literally anything you want." And so that just started to spread around uh. school, and people started to come to me. And then what's funny is that's how I started trying different drugs. Right, was right. People would say, "Can you get me cocaine?" And I'd say, "Yeah." And so then he'd bring me cocaine, and then I'd have it sitting on my desk. I'm like, "Well, it's here. I'm just yeah. gonna try a little uh, bit." And would be see weird what if I didn't. Like. And yeah. so, and then I started, you know, whatever he would bring me, I'd take like half of that out for me, and then <laughs> yeah. I'd double the price for that yeah. person yeah. and sell it. So it wasn't that I was a good drug dealer, but it was that I was a very dishonest one, and it worked because I was dealing with like, you know, rich Orange County yeah. high school kids. I'm yeah. not dealing with like, you know, gangs yeah. and people who are going to, you know. The rich kids are the best kids to sell Absolutely. To. Yes. Absolutely the That's best. That's where you stay safe. And yeah. same, same at Biola. I yeah. made so much money just selling my Adderall because uh-huh. right. people right. are just trying to do well in school. Right, right. Totally. That's, that's a, a whole other thing of the Adderall thing, which is interesting. Like it's a very that's not considered drug use. Mm-hmm. Like people do not consider that like taking some or snorting someone else's Adderall mm-hmm. as drug. I'm like you do know you don't have to snort it. Like yeah. you can actually take it as a pill. That was the original form. Yes. But like they're like, no, I'm going to snort it. And right. that's not using, I'm not a drug addict. Like, just enhancing the experience. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just studying. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an interest. It's interesting where we draw those lines, mm-hmm. you know, and where we tell ourselves or other people. I mean, for you, 
It sounds like your drug dealing was much more successful than mine. <laughs> um, I didn't have a scale. So mm -hmm. I would like buy weed and be like, this looks right. <laughs> Where's it going to yeah, go? Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you, that didn't work. It, it only took a few times for me to be put out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, going out of business sale immediately. So you're sleeping. So you have nowhere to live. Mm -hmm. Why do you have nowhere to live when you're at Fullerton? You had been kicked out? I'd been kicked out of my parents' house and they... Uh, they had said, I don't even know if I was kicked out, honestly. I think the yeah. conversation is probably that they said, you have to stop drinking yeah, if, if you want to live home. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, nope, that's yeah. that's not going to work. Looks like I'm homeless. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just decided to stay at school. I ended up. And they didn't, that, they didn't object? School didn't object? Well, they didn't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked that the girls didn't report me. Um, so you would just like get locked in there at night? Well, so there was a code. And so I could, I, because I was on the team, I had the code. And uh, so I would just come and go as they I were pleased. like, she is dedicated to this yes, team. Exactly. <laughs> she will not leave this gym. Yes. <laughs> and it was, I mean, I think the girls just didn't care because they yeah. knew how checked out I was. Yeah. And they knew, like, they could see what but was going on. But that didn't piss them off. Like this, I mean, I'm sure they weren't thrilled with it, but yeah. nobody, nobody ever, you know, confronted me about yeah. it or said anything to me. I think every now and then, you know, the girls would ask. I think, you know, they'd ask, you know, "Is everything okay?" Yeah, I think it was more concerned <laughs> than anything to is be everything honest. Everything okay? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's great. Yeah, no, I'm hence great. the sleeping in the in the locker room. But thanks for asking. Yep. The nice thing about being living in Orange County is like everybody will talk behind your back. If you were in New York, you probably would have gotten seriously confronted so oh yeah oh and that's the funniest thing I would get <laughs> I had this girl who I'd stolen her bike I'd taken it for days and then I'm you know just you know walking back to put it back where it was and she's standing there and she looks at me and she goes that's my bike and I was like oh well here I brought it back and she goes oh thank you um I was almost late to work because I had to, you know, I ride my bike to work. If, yeah. If you're going to take it again, can you just let me know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. And I walked away and it was like, if someone did that to me, yeah, someone stole totally. my bike and I'm we're like, like, oh my God. We're like so, it's like just sunny enough that we're still polite to each other yeah. even when we're stealing. Yeah. That's amazing. So how did you go? So what happened? Did you graduate from college? I did eventually. Uh, I took, I almost flunked out because I, I met these two guys who were hitchhiking through a friend. And there were four of us living out of my friend's car in Huntington. Mm. And I hope it was a suburban. I, it was not. It was a little <laughs> Subaru. Oof. And uh, it, uh, we, I really liked their lifestyle. I saw what they were doing. They had hit. They had hitchhiked from Chicago. Okay. Uh, they had gone up through. They were on their way up to San Francisco, and they ended up staying uh, with us for a while in this car. And I, I loved the freedom that they had. Wait, wait. So they hitchhiked, mm. and you had already secured the Subaru. So you were already living in the Subaru. It was my friends. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you guys, her. you guys were living in the Subaru. They hitchhiked and moved into your Subaru. They met us. Yeah. They were kind of also staying on a friend's couch in uh, Huntington. So okay. we would kind of bounce back and forth between the couches and right. the car. Okay. Depending on how drunk we were, or where we ended up. That right. Night. Right. And you were like, this is the best freedom ever. I looked at them and they just said, we have no money. You know, <laughs> we, we do odd jobs or like, we'll play, you know, one of them had a guitar and the other one had a drum and they would play music for money on the side of the street and they did whatever they wanted. They did drugs as much as they wanted and they 
didn't know where they were going to sleep that night. And they just got around by hitchhiking. And I was like, I want to do that. And so, you know, they left. I got super depressed and I was trying to finish school. And I was like, I have no interest in this. And so one spring break, I, I flew out to New York to see a friend. And then we spontaneously took a road trip down to Cleveland, Tennessee, in like this weird Bible Belt area. And I was in a, I found myself in a prayer barn and all of these weird situations. And it was a dry county. And so I was, I was sober for like three days and I thought I was going to die. And so I ended up stealing a one-pedaled bicycle that I could find, rode that outside of the county. A one-pedaled like, bicycle? One-pedaled bicycle. Yeah. That was all I could find that wasn't locked up. And so I ride that bike to a gas station that's right outside the county line. It was like at least a couple miles. And... I got really drunk. I missed my flight that next morning because I was still drunk. Went to the airport bar, had about seven cranberry vodkas, and then decided I want to go home. And so I uh, I missed my flight, and I walked out of the airport, and I stuck my thumb out, and I hitchhiked from Tennessee to Denver, Colorado, where I ended up staying for, I think, another six months or something. And I was I flew back home to take my finals, so I like failed half my classes that semester, and then, uh, and then I went, flew back to Denver, and was like, "I'm dropping out of school," and did that for a while. And but you eventually went back and graduated. Yeah, I eventually went back. I when I when I was in Denver, and we were in a bed bug infested apartment, and I the guy I was living with was super abusive, and I popped my bike tire, and I couldn't replace the bike tire to get to work, and I was just like, "I'm so sick of relying on other people," and so that motivated me. I ended up you know, flying back to Orange County. I was still like motel hopping, doing meth and heroin, but I channeled all of the motivation that I had into finishing school. And so I graduated. Are you, has that been useful? In its own way, yes. I don't think it was necessary for me to get where I am, but I'm definitely grateful that I finished. If for no other reason than, you know, so many of the classes that I took were were really, really beneficial for me in just developing, because I got my degree in English, and I think yeah. in developing, you know, critical thinking, the ability to communicate, you know, my degrees don't, I don't believe they qualify me for anything, but I feel like they've prepared me for a lot. Okay, okay. And uh, so you, you went to Tennessee, did you go, you went with a friend, mm -hmm. but the friend went home on the flight? Yeah, she, no, she wasn't on the flight, she was continuing her drive down to Arkansas, where her husband was in anger management and she was going oh. to try and repair her marriage. I was supposed to fly home and, and go back to school. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I got dropped at the airport and was just there by myself. So nobody knew where I was for days. And those three days that you were sober, did you detox? Like, did you have symptoms of detox or what was like, what you said you felt like you're going to die. Like, what was that like that forced sobriety? I, I mean, I, I thought that shaking was just part of a hangover. I thought right, that right, was right. just normal. So, I mean, the detox that I went through was, I, I think I threw up a couple times. I wasn't really able to keep food down. I just drank a lot of water and it was pretty useless. And then my head was just really, really loud. How long do you think it had been? And how old were you then? I think I was 20, 20, oh, I turned 22 when I was in Denver. So yeah, I was like 21, 22. So how long, so those three days before that, how long do you think it had been since you had been three days with no substance use? I don't know if I'd ever gone that period, maybe like during since the you long started. tournament, but yeah, I don't, I honestly don't think I ever had gone three days 
before that. I think I had one time on like a New Year's Eve resolution. I think after a bad hangover, tried to get sober. And I think I maybe went a couple days when I was like 19. Yeah. So there were there were a few times here and there where I would like string some days together. And I wasn't, I could go if I really, really needed to, I was able to go like, you know, maybe a week without using. Okay. And... You know, it, it wasn't easy, but what got me through that week was the thought of when am I going to be able to use again? But you would drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So you get to you get to Denver with the abusive boyfriend, but then you go back to OC and you mm-hmm. graduate. Mm-hmm. What and how old were you then? I was 23. Okay. And so you're back in OC, you've graduated, but you're still drinking the whole time? I'm still drinking and using heavily. Okay. And meth and heroin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and really anything I could find. Yeah. It didn't really yeah. matter. I was someone who was always, I was okay without drugs. If I, you know, if there weren't drugs there, okay. I wasn't so going like to freak out. Okay. But if I didn't have alcohol, it was like, okay. I'm not okay. Okay. So yeah, that was more, drugs are a big part of my story, but I feel like for me, everything always started and ended with alcohol. Yeah. 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 So what did you, so you graduate now what? So uh, nothing as far as like plans. I w- originally wanted to be a teacher and I was taking classes for the for the teaching credential program at Fullerton. And then I just realized I don't want to do this. I was coaching volleyball and I I was around the kids and I just I didn't feel right. I was like, I'm I'm not a role model. I'm not someone that they should look up to. Mm. Why am I even doing this? So what do I even think I'm here to teach people? So that's interesting because your story you're talking about like a lot of this, it sounds like there wasn't a lot of shame. There was a lot of confidence in what you were doing. Mm-hmm. But then it sounds like somewhere in that twenty to twenty-three range that started to change because you saying like, I was like, I shouldn't be around people. I'm not a role model. Like that sounds like a different tape running through your head than the one the years prior. Yeah. And I think what shifted it was seeing, was not wanting, I loved what I was doing for me. Never did I want to encourage anyone else to do that. I didn't want to feel like I was leading anyone else down, you know, the path that I had chosen. And yeah, I was very shameless about yeah. what I was doing and right. who I was. I I still to this day don't believe that I felt guilt until I got sober. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. So you, you didn't want to be around, you didn't, so what, what did you do after that? So what shifted for me, I was, uh, this guy who I had been in love with in high school had come back into Orange County. He had just gotten out of jail 
and he was sober and I started and he was someone who had always kind of come in and out of my life and you know we would we would get together and then he'd take off again and I wouldn't hear from him for like six months and then he came back into town he was sober and I convinced him to relapse and then he went out on a run and he overdosed on heroin and he passed away and I think that was the first time that I realized that I need to change something. Um, losing him absolutely devastated me. I couldn't even enjoy being high. I was, you know, hallucinating and I just... Were you I there when he overdosed? No. No, I got the call the next day. And um, yeah, that was the first time that I think I realized that, you know, this isn't what I want for myself. And so I decided that I needed to clean up my life, at least on the outside. Of course, never. I never wanted to look internally. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to right, you know, right. be self-reflective or, or change what I, who I was. I just wanted to change who I looked like. Right. And so I said, I'm not going to do any hard drugs. And I went and I got this job at a property management company. And, you know, it's nine to five. It's in an office that looks respectable. And I was like, I'm just going to drink. And I, for the most part, did that for about four years. And what I can tell you is that trying to pretend to be normal around people who are normal was far more painful and isolating mm -hmm. than Absolutely. being homeless and being on the streets and being in abusive relationships and being strung out on meth. Like that was like it was absolutely yeah. awful. I think that's a really great point. I haven't thought about that in a long time, which was so you talked about like I didn't get I didn't use for as long as you did because I weren't I I I was not quiet or high mm -hmm. like I just was in your face about all of it. But the times that part of the reason why I was like that was that I found it too painful to try to fit it. Like trying to fit in and trying to like be normal and realizing that you're just not mm -hmm. and like that it's just too hard and it's not and you're doing like a half-assed job of it yeah. which is like at best yeah I found that to be so much more painful like you said than just like being insane and living out loud it just mm. it just what like at least I could find my people at least I could live in my truth but when I would just try to keep like there was nothing more exhausting than trying to keep it together yes exactly and I was in uh, during those four years, I was in a one year and a half relationship with another alcoholic. And then I jumped from that relationship to another year and a half relationship with another alcoholic. And I think that was the only thing that even allowed me to do what I was doing for as long as I was, because once I got home, I didn't have to hide my drinking right. because, okay. you know, they drank the same way that I did. Were you drinking at the office? Like, did you, were you someone who had to drink all throughout the day? I would wake up and I would take a combination of Adderall and benzos okay and then on my lunch break I would do a little bit of cocaine okay and then I'd come home and then I'd drink okay until I was ready to go to bed then I'd smoke weed and go to bed okay and so, I would but, do that so you weren't drinking day. during the work day no and the cocaine benzos and amphetamines were not considered hard drugs in your mind nope Right. Okay. I just thought meth and heroin. Those are yeah. hard drugs. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I thought I was functioning and I thought I was doing it gracefully. Right. Right. So what happened after, after this, those years of holding it together? I really, really started to unravel. I had made my whole identity work. Mm. I spent, I was working like 70 to 80 hours a week. 
I didn't really have a life outside of work or an identity and things at work were not going well because obviously I, I wasn't really functioning. And probably the last six months leading up to getting sober, I lost the relationship that I was in, which is, it's, it's strange because I didn't even want to be in the relationship. But then when I lost it, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to be alone anymore, which was terrifying for me because I was yeah. someone that always used to be alone. Yeah. And, you know, I started to watch the people around me growing up because at this point I'm 27. I'm now like in my late 20s yeah. and I'm watching people change around me and people aren't drinking the same way that I am. And that's just me trying to drink right. normally and they <laughs> right. still don't want to drink the right. way that I want to drink. Right, exactly. And you think you're like <laughs> seriously minimized. I've done that too, where you think yeah. you're like, let's just keep it low key. And right. your version of low key is still heavy drinking for them. You're yes. Like, and I'll be going now. Exactly. And so I just became very, very isolated. And what I started to realize was that, because this was when I really threw my into it when I didn't feel like there was anything holding me back because I wasn't in these relationships anymore. Were you still working at the company? I was still there. And I, every time I used or drank, I, I couldn't escape anymore. That was for me when I hit that point of that inevitable point for every, you know, addict and alcoholic is when it stops working. Yeah. And I couldn't get high anymore. And even when I was drunk, it didn't shut my head off and I would go into psychosis you know, I, there was one night I tried to throw myself off of a building. Um, you know, I tried to, like, fight people. I, like, assaulted a taxi cab driver. I, like, tried to run into oncoming traffic to prove to somebody I was in a dream. Just weird, you know, things. How did you not throw yourself off the building? I, I was with people. Okay, I'd, okay. I'd gone down to San Diego to see college friends, and okay. they were literally, like, okay. dragging me down a okay. flight of stairs trying okay. to stop me from yeah. doing that. And um, Fun night out for them. It was, yeah. <laughs> and then I would just wake up the next morning and be like, well, last night was fun, wasn't yeah. it, you guys? Yeah, it just became, you know, progressively more and more isolating. And so then I'm, you know, to find people to drink with me, I'm, like, going online, trying to, you know— I can really only strangers will spend time with me because they're right. the only ones that don't know my patterns. And I pretty much would wake up every morning and decide whether or not I wanted to kill myself that day. And I started self-harming again, which was something I thought I'd outgrown. And I just I could literally feel like my mental faculties unraveling. And I started getting really, really crippling panic attacks. And I was someone that never had anxiety before. And I was just like, what is happening to me? And, and you're taking benzos, mm-hmm. so you'd think that, you know. Yeah, well, and I was terrified to go tell a doctor because I didn't want to lose my prescription. Right. And so I always was lying to my – so my doctor's sitting here trying to figure out what on earth is wrong with me, but I won't tell him the truth. Yeah. And I had never really known anyone that had gotten sober. I'd never really had much experience. I had, had no experience with 12-step programs, and I truly believed that I was the only one in the entire world that felt the way that I did. Mm. And so one night I was, you know, I, I think I'd been drinking for like 36 hours straight. And I I got back to, and because I had, when I broke up with the last boyfriend, I'd moved back into my parents' house. Oh, okay. And so I was living there with my two younger brothers. And I, they ended up having to, someone had filed like a missing persons report because they hadn't, they'd seen me drunk. And then I took off. I like caused a scene at their place of work. I don't really remember much, but... Um, the police were out looking for me. My brothers were out looking for me. They ended up finding me with no shoes, like walking down the street, like seven miles from wherever I'd been seen last. And I didn't believe that they were who they said that they were. And they had to, you know, tackle me, drag me into the back of the car, close the door. I tried to jump out of the car while it was moving. Naturally. I, you know, they get me back home. 
they lock me in my room and I'm just sitting there and I like I I was very drunk but I do actually remember this and I was just sitting on the bed and I see you know bottles of sleeping pills that I had saved up and there was a bottle of Gatorade and I just felt like you know I I'm 27 I think I've had a good run long life and I think I've seen everything that I need to see in this life but I'm really tired and I think I'm done yeah and so I took about 70 sleeping pills Mm. and I just remember sitting there and like watching there was like you know the black around my vision and it was like moving in slower and slower and then I just remember this feeling of like panic of like oh my god I don't want to die and I hadn't felt that feeling ever in my entire life and then that's the last thing I remember Uh, Apparently my brothers came in to check on me and um, my breathing was really funny and there were pills all over the bed and they couldn't get me to wake up and so they drove me to the hospital and the doctor said if they brought me in probably even five minutes later that I would have been dead. And of course my parents were out of town when all this is going on so my two brothers are going through this by themselves. They are just completely at a loss. And um, Did they pump your stomach? So they weren't able to pump my stomach because they said that my gag reflex was gone. And so they're <laughs> not able to do that. Oh, my God. And really? So, yeah. So they had to do what's called an electrolyte flush, which is basically where I have like 14 IVs in me. And they're having to uh, to flush my system. Oh, wow. And, um, and I had a collapsed lung. So they had to put like a balloon in my lung. And I was on life support. And I was in a coma. And, um, yeah, they said that my brothers literally saved my life. How long were you in a coma? I think a couple days. I, the first day that I remember was maybe three days or four days after I had overdosed. And I remember waking up in the hospital and I had this very distinct feeling of I'm supposed to be here. Mm. And it had been maybe a week or two before that. I'd been driving my car and I was really drunk and I was driving over this freeway ramp and I was having a panic attack and I just started screaming and crying up at the sky and I just said if there's anything, anything that is listening to me or that can hear me, please help me because I don't know, I don't know how to do this. And when I woke up in the hospital, I had this distinct feeling that that prayer had been answered and I just felt like I'm supposed to be here, I'm worth the space that I'm taking up and I'd never felt that way before. And the only thing that I knew for sure was that I was supposed to be sober. That's incredible. You woke up feeling that way? Immediately. I've never woken up from a a run or an overdose or any sort of anything feeling like, yes, I am Mm -hmm. supposed to be here. That is, I mean, that's different. That's different. I got to tell you, I don't think a lot of people feel that way. No, definitely not. (laughs) I haven't, I don't know if I've heard anyone else that said that or felt that way. No, I don't think, I think most people wake up like, oh, when did I do? Mm-hmm. This is going to be really bad. Yeah. Where am I? I think we have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's pretty, like, different and remarkable that, like, you woke up and, like, I'm supposed to be, like, with that belief. I mean, honestly, I think it took me, you know, years into sobriety and a lot of work to get there. And that that's really amazing. Yeah. Well, and I still didn't believe in, you know, a higher power that's necessarily you know, super caring or super involved. Right. But I did definitely believe that there was something keeping me there. Yeah. So so then at that point you were off life support? So yeah, I got, uh, as soon as I woke up, actually, the first thing that I did was, and I was strapped down to the bed, mm-hmm. but I hoisted myself up somehow and I ripped the breathing tube out, which mm-hmm. they said did some serious 
damage oh, to my really? throat. And because uh, I just remember waking up and I couldn't breathe, but I didn't realize that the machine was breathing for me. Right. And so I was terrified. So actually, all of that happened first. Then once I kind oh, okay. of okay. settled down, okay, then I and I started reflecting and recounting. Okay, that's much more exactly normal. how I'd gotten yeah. there. And then it was like, oh my god, I'm supposed to be here. Did you remember? Like, were you, did you remember, like, oh, I took the sleeping pills? Yeah. Is, okay, okay. But uh, I was so terrified to be 5150, and I didn't know what they would do if I told them that I'd taken the pills. And so any questions they asked me, I only, I just continued to repeat over and over again, I don't remember, I don't remember. And they, so I wouldn't even tell them. They 5150 you? No, because they said that I wouldn't admit to it being on purpose, and so they didn't 5150 me. Who takes 70 sleeping pills by accident? I don't know. Wow. Yeah. Do they think that that's a thing? Well, no. I, I mean, I think that they knew that but it, they can't it was fifty one fifty you unless you admit to it. Uh, yeah, because I wasn't suicidal in that moment. Interesting. I got fifty one fifty for overdosing on heroin. Mm-hmm. I was not, and, and I, that was not. I was not intentionally doing that. Yeah, it was very yeah. strange because my mom kept coming in and saying, you know, the doctors need to know if you're suicidal or if you did right. this on purpose. Right. And I knew why she was asking me because I was like, no, 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 they're going to lock me up. Right. I don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, no, no, I'm fine. I feel fine. I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. Too much partying. And yeah, like, too much partying. That's all I would say to yeah. people, just I don't remember. Yeah, wow. That's that's incredible. So, So then how long did it take you to get out of the hospital? I got there on a Saturday night. And I was released on a Wednesday night. I still couldn't really walk. Uh, I couldn't really keep food down. And I, you know, felt like, okay, this is, you know, this is going to be it. This is when I change everything for myself. Yeah, yeah. And so I got back home. And then I think probably the first day that I was really able to, like, walk and function was, like, Saturday. And I left my house, not with the intention of getting high. But I left my house and I was high again that night. And that was when I realized no desire for to stop was going to be enough, that I needed outside help, yeah. that I had no idea what I was doing, that I was yeah. completely out of control. And I, for the first time in my life, I was terrified. Yeah. Because you me, used against time, your will, right? Exactly. Because yep. this whole time I thought, well, no, I've just never wanted to stop. Right. That's why I couldn't yeah. stop. And then... There is nothing like that feeling of like, I want, okay, no, seriously, I want to stop. And then you, your body does something against your mental will. It's like, you're like, oh no, I'm in so deep. Like, I don't even know how to, like, you know how insane that sounds. So you don't know how to tell people because first of all, you've already been labeled a liar Mm -hmm. and a, you know, and a cheat and a thief and all these things. So to go and tell someone like I used against my will, you're like, no one's going to believe me. Right. Like that's an insane thing, but it literally is what happens. Yeah. So did you, how did you get that help? I had already been going to a therapist that was in addiction medicine, and I was going to her for, you know, trauma and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had, before, you know, all of this had even happened, had already suggested that I go to rehab. And mm-hmm. at the time, I had said, absolutely not. And so she was the only person who I knew to go to. So I went back to her, and she recommended that I go into treatment. And so I went through a day treatment program through Kaiser that was 30 days and, you know, you're there all day long and mm-hmm. you just go home to sleep and they drug test you every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, they teach you about the disease model of addiction. Mm-hmm. And I start, you know, all of these things, these pieces started falling together. 
you know, explaining why I was the way that I was. And everything started to make sense. And, you know, that program, you know, really promoted, uh, you know, going to a 12-step program. And so they didn't take us there, but, they, you know, we had a signature card that we had to go get signed every week. And so I started doing that. And then there was a family night at Kaiser. And so, you know, my family came. And I finally, for the first time, was honest with them about everything I was doing. And they were extremely, extremely supportive and I think just relieved. They were relieved yeah. that I was alive. They were relieved that for the first time, you know, I was admitting that I had a problem and that I was doing something about it. And so I was at a family night at Kaiser and I met this girl who was a sister of someone who I was in treatment with who had a year and a half sober. And she was pumped on life. Like she was so stoked about sobriety and she was just on fire. And, you know, she shared at the meeting and was just like, if anyone needs anything... And then she comes up to me afterwards and gives me her number and says, we are going to be best friends and I'm going to take you to all of my meetings and it's going to be great. And like the first thing going through my head is like, this girl is not sober. She's way too happy. <laughs> she's not sober. <laughs> but she was happy. And yeah. I was like, well, if she's if she's happy, I want to I want to feel the way she's feeling. Right. That looks awesome. Right. So I followed her to those meetings and that was where, you know, I found a group of people that were, you know, primarily young people that yeah. were very rowdy, very loud and very fun and very boisterous, but took their sobriety very, very seriously. Yeah. And so I think my first meeting there was 11 days sober and I haven't, I've never left since then. Um, I think I was very lucky to have basically had somebody show up and just take my hand. And you know, I, I still did the footwork. I, yeah. still, oh, yeah. I still pushed through the discomfort to get there, but I think... There were, you know, looking back, there's just all these little guides that were there mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. and that guided me through everything. And all I had to do was just, you know, put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And, you know, things things fell into place for me very, very naturally. Has your sobriety been like pretty, uh, what's the word? Like, have you, you know, we talk about being on a pink cloud mm -hmm. and, you know, have you had moments where you've questioned your sobriety or what were like some of the big change points? Yes. I, uh, I, I do think to a certain extent I experienced a little bit of a pink cloud and it's I don't even really, I don't like that term for some reason, because for me, honestly, I, I still feel like I am on one in the sense that I feel really, really, really good most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that has never changed for me as long as I'm doing everything that I need to do for my sobriety. I think the first big change for me was vulnerability, was opening up. That mm -hmm. was very, very difficult for me. I was extremely closed off. I was very skeptical. I was very quiet. And, you know, I people terrified me. And for me, I, I felt like I was in a position of power if people didn't know how I was feeling. Mm. And so, you know, my first sponsor was this, you know, she was like a 23-year-old high school dropout. She was a total hippie. She believed love was the answer to everything. And I was like, I do not want what this woman has. But, <laughs> you know, she's my sponsor. And yeah. so I'm going to do what I need to do. And, um, you know, I think it took me like five or six months to have a conversation with her that was longer than five minutes. And oh, to wow. just open up and let her know what was going on in my head, to let other people know what I was feeling and what I was thinking. And, you know, when we have alcoholism, which is in our head, it's so important that we're doing that. Yeah. Because anytime we're holding something in, you have guilt and you have shame, and then it gets so much bigger than it actually is, and it holds so much power. And 
we literally just have to say it out loud to remove that power from it. And I was very unwilling to do that in the beginning. Yeah. So I got into a lot of pain. Yeah. I was very isolated. Yeah. I was around people, but I wasn't really letting anybody in. Yeah. And then over time, I started to watch, you know, I started to watch people share their stories and I started to watch them heal and get better. And just something in me slowly shifted where I just started it a little bit at a time. And I just started really pushing myself where, I, you know, I was like, okay, I've got to do this vulnerability thing if I'm going to stay sober and if this is going to work. And so I did it and it was very rewarding. And so over time I started, you know, to continue to push myself to do that. What did you think about, like, when you came into your first 12-step meeting, what did you think about that whole setup where you you talked about being skeptical, not Mm -hmm. wanting to be vulnerable, and you also had this, you know, history with, um, you know, a conservative family and and the Christian school and all that. What was that, like, was the word God scary to you? Was, like, were you, like, these people are cray-cray? I definitely, the word God... I didn't like that it was there, and I had, you know, I identified as, you know, I, I was, you know, into deism at one point, and then kind of went more atheist, and then transitioned kind of into agnostic, and so yeah, when I saw the word God, I definitely didn't like it. But someone just said that, look, it's not what you think. This is your own conception of a higher power, and this is not religious. And so honestly, after that, I was just kind of like, okay, cool. And then I didn't really put much thought into it again until I probably had about nine months sober and then realized that I'd been tricked into into spirituality. And I got really (laughs) upset. And I was like, wait, what? Like it hit me in this whole new way where I was sitting there reading a chapter in a big book study and was, you know, reading a chapter I'd read so many times before. And it very clearly states that, you know, our only way out is a spiritual solution. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, I don't want it though. But at that point I was already so far in. Yeah. I was like, you guys tricked me. Yeah. But what I've come to really realize is that, you know, it has nothing to do with religion and it, you don't ever have to define it. You know, it's based, you know, purely on our own experiences and that, you know, whatever preconceived notions we come in with, you know, about God, about religion, about any of it, that those just kind of go away and we're able to form something new based on concrete experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a huge uh, speed bump for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I completely understand that. And I think, you know, it's funny. I read that so many times and I don't think it was till like 10 years sober that I was like, well, I guess I better like really start doing the spirituality thing because I got to like, I've done all the rest of the stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like I've faked it till I've made it 10 yeah. years and now I have to seriously put some work into that. And I remember feeling very afraid when I realized like, this is the depth. This is the, mm-hmm. this is the core of the onion that we talk about peeling. Like this is where the like this is the final frontier and I remember feeling like really afraid like I can't do this like this is not like I can do the step work I can write the stuff out I can you know do the columns I can but like this for real because I can't fake my spirituality is has nothing to do with what I tell you Mm -hmm. right so it's like I can read you my fist step or tell you what step I'm on but like my spirituality like that has nothing to do with you. It's an internal thing. Yeah. And so if I'm not doing it, I'm the only one who's like suffering from that. Exactly. Yeah. It's very much a personal 
you know, internal journey. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it it is a barrier to entry for a lot of people, especially young people. And so I'm always curious what people's you know, initial response and how they get over that if they continue. And it's, I I mean, I think it's great that you didn't question it. You're like, all right, whatever. Yeah, because my sponsor would always say the universe instead of God. She never said God. And even still to me, I still don't even say God. I say higher power. I say source. I say universe. Yeah, yep. And so that was kind of my way around it. Yeah. And it has not hindered me at all. Yeah, yeah, same. So what does your sobriety look like? You know, you're two and a half years sober now and sounds like you've done a lot of internal work. So you started getting vulnerable about nine months. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to like really start to feel like vulnerability was a habit? Probably, probably about a year and a half. Okay. I, I start, I started working with a group called the Tribe of Elephants that, you know, specifically worked on, um, you know, exploring spiritual laws and, uh, you know, that part in the book where it talks about perfecting and enlarging on our spiritual life. And so anyone to be in the group, you don't even have to be in a 12-step program, but, you know, it's open to anybody. And we would really just start to work on, you know, questioning the beliefs that we have and figuring out if we have those beliefs because we were taught them or if it's because they're actually our own truth. And then exploring what, you know, form spirituality actually has in our lives and what we're doing to, you know, strengthen that connection. And so I think it wasn't until I joined that group at around nine months and that was my turning point of really starting to want to push myself and actually having a desire to get better yeah, and having a desire to, you know, work on who I am as a person and to actually care about, you know, what I'm bringing to the world rather than what I'm taking from it. Yeah. And that was a big turning point for me because I very much had the attitude of, hey, I agreed to get sober. I did not agree to try and be a better person. Yeah. And that was very much my attitude in the beginning. And it was like, I am here because drugs and alcohol stopped working. Right. Not because I wanted to get better. Right. Right. That was a huge... I don't think I thought about it that clearly. I sort of thought about it in the way of like, oh, I have to be a better person in order to stay sober. That was just my, that was my interpretation. But I definitely remember thinking like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm here because I have a drug and alcohol problem and Mm -hmm. you're getting really carried away over here. You know, (laughs) like now we're talking about all sorts of stuff that, and and I remember looking at the the steps and, and talking to people. I was like, why is no one in this meeting talking about using or alcohol? Like, mm-hmm. what is going on? You yeah. know, like, how is this going to help me with my, like, near-fatal drug addiction? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking? I don't care about your day at work, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm just like, I just remember thinking, like, okay. Like, like, where is the connection yeah, here? Yeah, and really, like, for me, everything else had to fail. And I, I really had to feel like, I don't know what's going to work for me, so I'm just going to do what they're doing because, like, I don't understand what this is. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I don't think I still, like, I th- still some, I still think to myself, like, oh, I'll feel better when I go to a meeting or whatever. And I'm like, I've heard every, I've been in meetings, you know, since I was 15 years old. Like, what am I possibly going to hear? And then every time I do, I do feel better and mm-hmm. I grow and blah, blah, blah. So I just like have pushed part of my brain to stop asking questions around that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why that desperation is so necessary 
when people come into the program because the gift of desperation. Exactly, because you have to be beaten into a state of reasonableness. You <laughs> yeah. have to be out of your own yes. ideas. Yes. And Completely you out. have to be done fighting. And for me I'm so grateful that I waited until I was really ready yeah, yeah. to show up and to try because otherwise I think I would have ruined my experience with it and then I would have walked away believing that it didn't work for me. I think a lot of people do that. I'm mm-hmm. grateful that you survived yeah. long enough to have your own experience with that because I also think that a lot of people, they don't, you know, that they would not live if they didn't try, if they didn't have those periods of sobriety. Mm-hmm. I definitely think I'm one of those people. Like if I had waited till I was ready Mm-hmm. Without any intervention, I would not have survived. Absolutely. I would not have survived just because of the way that I was using at people. Mm-hmm. And I think that I there was just no way I was going to. And in this like fentanyl climate, there's not a chance in hell I'd survive. Absolutely. Not a, not a chance. So Well, and that's why I even loved hearing your story because, you know, anytime I have a woman who comes to me and, you know, they're like 17, 18, mm-hmm. And I have a hard time in my mind really wrapping, you know, wrapping my mind around the idea that was it bad enough for you to be ready? And I loved hearing your story because that was so apparent that (laughs) you were going to die and you needed you needed to do something about it right away. <laughs> and so I love that, you know, that you taught that you, your your story really demonstrated that. And I think it will even help me moving forward and trusting that if somebody is here, this is exactly where they are supposed to be. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it was useful. You know, it's funny, even I, I don't know if I talked about it in my story, but like it took me two years in sobriety after that to admit to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. Mm. Like, I I still wasn't sure. I was like, yeah, I'm a heroin addict, but I don't know about this alcohol, you Mm. know? And I remember telling myself that I would, I was not going to drink or use, or no, I'm sorry, I was not going to relapse because I was just trying to like justify drinking. Yeah. I was not going to drink. Meanwhile, I've already done this experiment. Yeah. It didn't go well. <laughs> and I was like, going to justify, so trying to justify drinking. And I was like, I'm not going to drink until I know either way. Mm-hmm. And then I can make a decision. I can say, screw it. I want to do it anyway. Or I can say like, no, I really am. And I remember like, I, tr- I remember where I was sitting. I remember what I was doing. I was rewriting a first step and I was writing out all the things specific to alcohol, because I think when you do a lot of drugs, at least for me, it can get confusing about like, mm-hmm. well, alcohol's different, like, which I don't, in, in retrospect, it's like, it, it literally does like, affects you from the neck up. Like, yeah. It's just legal in a bottle. Like there's no, it's a drug. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember sitting on my bed, writing out this first step and like, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And it was, I was writing out like all the different things. And I was writing out that I would wear, when I was 16, I would wear diapers because I would constantly pee myself. And like, I'm like, like, what 16 year old like wears adult diapers instead of like, you know, and I'm writing this out and like that realization, two years sober. Yeah. Well, and I love those little negotiations and like compromises (laughs) and like just those little like deals that we make with ourselves about okay I'm not going to drink until I know until I know certain yeah yeah uh, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing mine when I got in there because the the thought of going the rest of my life without drinking was absolutely incomprehensible to me I was just like I can't I can't even begin to wrap my head around that and so I said I'm going to do six months Uh, yeah 
And if my life isn't better in six months, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to go back to what I was doing. And so that got me through six months. And then six months came around and I was like, you know what? Things are, I feel better. Like things are slowly improving and like, I kind of want to see where this goes. So I'm going to give it a year. And then by the time I hit a year, I was like, I wouldn't trade this for anything in the entire world. And yeah. I was I was there, but I needed those little deals yeah. with myself. Uh, oh yeah, to get there. Oh yeah, another one I had was if I wanted to drink, I was allowed like because I'm like you, don't control me, mm-hmm. do not tell me what to do because yeah. I will do exactly what you tell me not to do. Yes. <laughs> um, and so one of them was, I can drink. I'm allowed to drink, uh, not like this BS of like, we'll just have a drink tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like I literally am going to drink. But I cannot make the decision to drink and take the drink in the same 24 hours. Mm, yeah. So that was like, I was like, if I want to drink in 24 hours, if it's still a good idea, it's still going to be a good idea. Yeah. And so that was like a deal that I made with myself, but not like a like how a lot of the sponsors were like, you can drink tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, you know what? That's a trick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're lying. You're yeah, going to you say the same thing. Yeah, you recognize someone else is totally, doing it. Totally, totally. Yeah. I'm like, you're going to say the same thing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But my thing was like, no, I'm going to make the decision now. And if it's still a good idea in 24 hours, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was never a good idea in 24 hours. Yeah. And like- But I meant it. I was really like, I will drink in 24 hours. But the conviction that those little rules and and knowing that I could, Mm -hmm. if I needed that out or if it still made sense, like if I could still justify it, then I would do it. I don't know. That made me feel better than like one day at a time. We'll discuss it tomorrow. Like I could, that, that felt, I felt like. Like, I see what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I see through this. Yeah. And that's why it's helped me a lot. And when I'm working with women, not trying to force them to mentally take it off the table before they're ready. Right. And that's been very important. And that's why I'm so grateful I've had that experience. Because if I had just come in and say, I'm swearing off forever, and then, you know, I was successful, I would be so much... I'd be so le- so much less patient with other people. Totally. That's true. Like having that, having had that experience. Mm. Yeah. It's the same with like the boy, the toxic boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. <laughs> they're ready when they're ready. Like you yeah. just have to accept they're going to go back and like you just leave a space for them to show up when they're ready. Because yeah. people just, you know, when it's when you're in a relationship, whether it's with a substance or a person like that, you have to be ready because it's too hard. The work is too hard to do mm-hmm. if you're not totally desperate and willing. Absolutely. And in a weird way, I think, you know, looking back at some of the behaviors that I kept with me, you know, all the way up through, you know, even a year, maybe even a year and a half of really unhealthy behaviors. In a weird way, I think those things kind of kept me sober. Oh, yeah. Before I was ready to rely on a higher power. Because for me, my higher power was a group for a long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, before I was really ready to to give up this control and to, you know, I just wasn't ready to change everything from the very beginning. And I think that those things helped me along in a lot of ways. And so that's why, like, I don't get to determine the pace of anybody else's process because had somebody had I had somebody who didn't understand it yeah. and had not been patient with me I don't know if I would have made it yeah I still try to control like my husband's process oh I do too yeah, yeah. with yeah. my boyfriend who's yeah. six months sober yeah. right now and it yeah. has just been a whole oh, learning like, lesson <laughs> we hurry this up I'm just when do we get to the good part yes yeah I'm, yeah my my sponsor is like the reason I'm still in that relationship yeah because she has saved me from being oh, yeah. a controlling psycho 
go past. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My sponsor, too, actually. She was in my wedding yeah. for that reason. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah, because I was just like, I just, I mean, still, you're just like, what do you mean they get to move at their own pace? Mm-hmm. Don't they know I'm involved in the relationship? Right. Like, this cannot happen, but it's the same thing. Like, no one's going to move me from where I am. Like, mm-hmm. and <laughs> not him, that's for sure. Well, and I don't know if you're this way, but I definitely am. The second that I figure something out, even if it's been glaring for like a year and it's been causing harm in everyone's lives around me, but the second that I figure it out, I'm like, oh, this is phenomenal. This is incredible. I feel, you know, so enlightened. And then I go around demanding that everyone who's in my life figure it out at the same time because I have figured it out. And yeah. It is You're just trying to help so, people. Jeez. Yeah. It is, it is out of control how quickly I will shift from, like, just complete obliviousness to, like, I'm so enlightened and yeah. I have something that I need yeah. to teach you. You need to know about this. Well, the best is, like, when you first get sober— and you start looking around and you're like, wait a minute, you need this. Yes. You need, you're like Oprah with like 12 step program, yes. like looking around and like, and you need a 12 step, you need a 12 step. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's because you, it's like a new, you know, as they say, new pair of glasses, like as you literally look around and you're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. But of course, you feel like you've made this tremendous change. It's been two months and your family is like, are you joking? You're like, I'm a new person. What are you talking about? Right. You know, give me the keys to the car. Yeah, that demand to be trusted yeah. and right. to, <laughs> right. you know, have everybody right. forget. Like, what are you talking about? I've been sober two months. I am a new person. Exactly. It's been forever. Yeah. Are you still bringing up the past? Well, well, three months so, ago. It's so easy for us to forget that. We've been talking about this stuff. We've been healing right. from it. We've right. been growing. Right. They're, you know, unless, you know, our families are going to other programs, they're yeah. not really healing from any no, of it. And not, so and it still yeah. feels the back same there, for them. Now just they're back, yeah, and real now pissed. They're, they're yeah. Really now that they're upset. not terrified, they're they actually relief. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're like, okay, she's not going to die. God, I'm so pissed at her. Right. And know? we just want them to be stoked that, like, we're yeah. not adding new harm on totally. anymore. Well, and then there's the whole thing of, like, Okay, yeah, I'm better, but like I'm still not great and I'm yeah. still not super pleasant right. to be around all the time right. in early sobriety because there's still so much right. discomfort and so much crawling growing. out of my skin. And so my parents are like, Well, what's the deal? You know, you're sober. We yeah. thought things were because they let me live at home for two years, my first two years sober, which I'm so grateful for. And I'm, you know, looking back, I'm. I can't believe they stuck with me because I would, I just at times had this attitude of like, well, I'm sober and I'm doing what I need to do and I don't owe anyone anything. Right. And not right. really, not really fully grasping the damage that I've done. Yeah. And wanting that desire to just move on from it and not really wanting to go back and actually clean up the wreckage from my past. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Seeing it from the other side, like seeing what it looks like. I've, I, I was doing interventions for a while and Ooh, being cool. with the, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I really enjoyed it. Being with the families and the parents and experiencing it from that end was, it was so hard. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, it was just emotionally so hard to see what I did yeah. through the eyes of the parents and like see how much they just wanted to lay on the train tracks for them and just make it go away and but also seeing how the translation of that came out Mm -hmm. like you know it was like I would spend the time and the parents you know see this like incredible love for their child and then the child would show up and they're pissed that they're strung out like that's what it looks like and totally having this understanding that they just don't know how to like there's everybody is just 
completely in fight or flight, totally Mm. panicked, not at their best, not coming up, you know, doesn't have coping skills, but like behind the curtain, seeing what that looks like for the family that's truly afraid that their child is going to die and they can't do anything about it. Oh, it was so heartbreaking. I remember calling my parents and just saying like, I'm so sorry, Mm. you know, just like, oh, you know, just painful. And yeah, it's like, I really didn't understand how I, I always said to them, I'm doing this to myself. This is my choice. I'm not doing anything to you. Stop acting like I'm like hurting you when this Mm -hmm. is something I'm doing. Like I just did not get it. Yeah. I I, really thought that too. Yeah. I was the same way. I used to think that people's problems was just the problem was that they cared too much. (laughs) Right. They cared too much what I was doing. They needed to mind their own business and then maybe it wouldn't impact them so much. Right. Exactly. Just let go. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that delusional selfishness of I'm only hurting myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it's hard when you get to like face that up front when you realize like how much and it's over time too you know I think certain things have hit me when I had um when I had my my twin boys you know and over time just looking at them and thinking about thinking about that and Mm. like from a parental perspective like knowing how you feel about your child and your child like I mean so Toddler boys, they're suicidal. Don't get it twisted. Mm. They're suicide. Like they jump off of things. They no no helmet. Where they're running into the street. Like it is like seriously. Might as well be a fifty-one fifty situation at my house at all times. So I can just imagine. Like I know what that feels like when my child, who's not unhappy but just apparently wants to die, Mm -hmm. jumps headfirst off into you know into the ground and is like thinks that this is a great plan. I know what that feels like being the parent just watching that. Yeah, you know, like just feeling like so helpless and like. Like, I'm not prepared for this. Like, yeah. you know, who, where are the grownups? Someone help. Um, yeah. And then taking that, like, and multiplying it by, like, 100,000 to a teenager or a young 20s or whatever and them doing what they're doing, I just can't even imagine. I just can't even imagine. And then that's when I start praying that karma is kind to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and it's, I think, our, that was probably the two biggest pills for me to swallow in sobriety were the first one was that I'm a people pleaser mm. that and you know because me I was like you're like I don't care no, yeah, yeah, like, yeah I'm fearless oh, I say what I yes. want I say what's on my mind yes, I, don't I care people, yeah. yeah no I tell people the truth I'm so <laughs> manipulative and I hide and right. I pick and choose right. when to do that and I'm harming people yeah. in the things that I'm telling them it was that and then the second one was that I'm a control freak and that was so difficult for me really? to come to terms with. I Coming into it, I was just like, I've never cared what anyone else is doing. Uh, I've never thought about what anyone else is doing. Okay. And no, I don't even think about what I'm so wrapped up in what I'm doing. Right, I'm not right, even right. thinking about other people. But uh, then it was when I got sober that that started really coming out. And I right. started to realize how much of a control freak I am and how strong of a desire I have to control other people's experiences. Oh, yes. And believe that I need to protect them from pain. Uh I need to shelter them. And it's all that same stuff that I was pushing away from my whole life. And it's been, and so it's been really cool 
getting to work on that side of things too, because I think for so many, you know, when you see people who are sober but aren't doing any kind of a program, Oof. that's probably the biggest, you know, Looks trait that comes really out bad. is that desire to yeah. control. Yeah. And it's like they miserable. Yeah. It looks miserable. Absolutely. And yeah. so, like, I'm so grateful that I've, you know, gotten the opportunity to really work on yeah. that because, you know, it, it comes out in the sneakiest ways where, like, I'm only, like, two months into, like, actually working on an eating disorder that oh. I didn't even think I had. And, yep. you know, just starting wow, two to— two years, don't let it go. Do yeah. it now. Do yeah, it now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's I, I ended up going into OA for, like, for real mm -hmm. this— not this year, 2019. And I was saying to my sponsor, OA, for those of you who don't know, is Overeaters Anonymous. And it's it's like a, it's all eating disorders, binge, purge, mm -hmm. restrict, overeat, whatever it is. And uh, <laughs> I remember saying like, I have been here six months and I am not losing weight. Like, what <laughs> is the problem? You know, like, like still missing the fact, like, it's a spiritual program mm -hmm. wherever you go. It doesn't matter that I have 14 years sober. Right. Like, absolutely not. You cannot cash your AA chips in any other program. Sorry, mm -hmm. not happening. And she goes, well, if you had lost the weight in the last six months, you wouldn't stick around to get the recovery. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, it's so true. Yep. It's so true. Six months if I lost all the weight, see ya, I'm out. You mm -hmm. know, like that is that is how like and it's still like I always say that I will use no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. I will use against my will no matter what happens. If I am not treating my disease, I will use it won't be something I'm intentionally doing or I won't be aware of it or whatever it is. But rest assured, I'll find something yeah. to fixate on and use and it it will become that. I will that find problem. something to do obsessively. Yes, obsessively, yes. And that's what I've even started to realize because when I started working on this. I felt literally like I'd gotten sober all over again. <laughs> it was incredible. Yeah. I felt this like physical and emotional and spiritual connection to myself that I didn't even know was possible. And what I started to realize was how blocked off I had been. And and I've started to realize that anything that we're doing obsessively, anything that we're using to cope is what cuts us off from yeah. that spiritual connection. And that was something that like I really didn't fully grasp until recently. And that idea that now I'm back to praying and meditating like my life depends on uh -huh. it because I know, I know for a fact how unmanageable this eating stuff is for me. And I know that if I'm not, you know, putting in that work that it's, I'm not going to be successful. Yeah. And so I'm remembering what it looks uh -huh. like to really you know, surrender that area of my life. And it's improved my sobriety and it's improved yeah. every other aspect yep. of my life because, you know, all of it is just is digging deeper spiritually. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I mean, it's so funny because, you know, I, I just went into, I went into, an, you know, to deal with the eating disorder and I was like, yeah, you know, I've done that. I got this. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it just knocked me on my ass and it was like back to, you know, those feelings and all that stuff. And I was like, oh my God, it's still a spiritual program. Like, yep. <laughs> oh no, you know. Which just, I'm not sure if it makes it easier or harder. Yeah. That it's like, you're doing the same thing, but just. Oh, it makes it way differently. Yeah. It makes like, it way harder. Cause I was like, okay, you know, like I know. And I'm like, no, I need worksheets. Mm -hmm. I need homework. Uh, I need a retreat. 
I need a plan of action. Mm-hmm. I need, you know, like all these. I was like, no, 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 give it to me concretely. And it's like, yeah, it's a spiritual program. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I cannot survive in this these conditions. You know, <laughs> yeah, like this is, but it's the same. I think what's great for me, I don't know if this is your experience, but what's great for me is that because I had no options left when I got to program, I experienced that things I didn't understand helped me. And so now I have that to refer back to. Like, hey, dum-dum, you don't know how to fix this problem on your own. So this is that again. Just keep remembering, you know, just that reminder of like, remember how you didn't know this was going to work last time? Mm. Well, that's the same thing here. And like, okay, okay, okay. I'm just going to listen, do what I told. I had a, that's funny. I just had a conversation uh, with one of the women I'm working with on, you know, she kept using this term, you know, I have to just have blind faith. I have to just have blind faith. And I was like, why do you keep calling it blind faith? And she goes, well, I'm having to just, you know, trust that I'm going to be okay, even though I don't know that. And I said, well, has there ever been a time since you've been sober that you haven't been okay? Yeah. She goes, well, no, I guess not. And I was like, so you have, you know, you have almost a year's worth of experience that shows you that you're always okay. Yeah. So it's not really blind faith. Yeah. You have past you have concrete past history right. to look on right. showing you that you're always gonna be okay. Right. And so it's that the it same idea with that yeah. where it's like just keep referring you know, back. I just, I just have to keep trusting, I just have to keep trusting. And it's like at this point it's barely even I barely even think of it as trust anymore. Well, yeah, you like, have well, no, I already know it's yeah. gonna be okay. If this were law and order, the case would be shut. Yeah, you like know, I already like, know it's win. gonna be fine. Yeah. I just, yeah, no, I just have true. to do what people tell me. Oh, that's the hardest part. Who know what they're doing oh. and I will be okay. But I question everyone and mm-hmm. if they know what they're doing and and that's, you know, that's been like my control and my like my ego mm-hmm. and my all those things of like I don't want to be told what to do, but my life depends on being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and also our this is what, and I love that that fact that you ask questions because what it means is that you really learn the lessons. You really you're like when you're going to help somebody with that, you're going to be able to tell them what they're doing, but you're also going to be able to tell them why they're doing it because right. you asked questions along the way and because you were so conscious conscious of the process as you were going through it. And because I'm in a lot of ways, I'm the same way. I approach it as like, I'm super willing to do what you want me to do, but can I ask them questions as oh, to yeah. why? And oh, I yeah. just want to know. My husband um, puts me on question ban. That's a thing in our house. I love that. Because I ask so many questions and I produced a mini me. And now I know what it's like to have someone ask you questions <laughs> like all day. But I, that's always like, I'm a questioner. Like mm-hmm. I just, I have a, so I have questions about everything. Uh, that's why I do a podcast. So I can just ask questions. You yeah. Know? Just ask people, <laughs> ask people invasive questions, but it's like in a, in a, in a dome that allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that was, that's a great part. And it's also the hardest part yeah. because I saw a lot of people who didn't ask any questions and they got it much faster than I did. They mm-hmm. healed much faster than I did because now they can't answer the same questions as mm-hmm. well. So they're not great sponsors in that way for me, people like me, but they just shut up and did what they were told and didn't ask like, yeah, but how does this work? Mm-hmm. And their lives got better much faster. Yeah, it was definitely the <laughs> the question asking is in its own way. It's yeah. a form of resistance. Oh, totally. And that's all it is. And right. so, yeah, it just slows down right. the process a little bit. It doesn't. Yeah. Like, I, you'll still make it, yeah, but it's just yeah. going to take just, a little longer. It's going to take you longer. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I heard someone in a meeting the other day talking about how the pain is in the resistance. The yes. pain is in the resistance. And like with uh with my personality it's like i i'm I just 
it's like, you know, I'm on default resist. Yeah. You know, I resist before I even know what I'm resisting or why. Yeah. And so changing that, those default settings is so, you know, vital to living a comfortable. Oh, yeah. Well, and what's ironic is so with the law of non-resistance, mm-hmm. it's that whatever you, you resist yeah, you will attract. persist. Yeah. It's going to right. get bigger. Right. And, and like I talk with, you know, the that was first introduced to me in talking about emotions. It was that if you're really depressed and you're resisting the idea that you're depressed, you're going to feel more depressed <laughs> because you're already depressed. Right, right. Now you're rejecting you're de- yourself for being right, depressed. Yeah, exactly. So if you just lean into the feeling, right. accept it, right. you know, love yourself for exactly where you right. are in this moment, that is what will allow it to pass. So, yeah, it's, yeah the pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Right. Suffering comes from the resistance. From the resistance. Yeah, I love I've been listening and well, listening to the books, um, doing a lot of Gabby Bernstein. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm obsessed. And yeah, I've read Judgment Detail. Yeah. And uh, what's the other one? Super Attractor and Universe Has Your Back. Uh, it's Is it Spiritual Junkie? Oh, Spiritual Junkie. Yeah, I've read yeah, those. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's, she's in recovery as mm-hmm. well and talks about, you know, she talks about a lot of ideas that work with my, like, brain that wants to know the scientific reason for things. Yeah. And that, that's been a really hard piece of spirituality. But the spirituality I've been able to access in these later years has been really cool around, like— learning about how how like all things are made of atoms that are vibrating like mm-hmm. everything is actually vibrating yeah. and like not like woo woo like for real yes. and everything anything that vibrates is going to vibrate at a frequency mm-hmm. and like so learning this stuff stuff that I was not open to and stuff stuff in a in language I can digest because mm-hmm. my brain wants to go to like prove it to me. Right. Um and then then I can I've come far enough that I can take the leap of faith with mm-hmm. it. I can go, oh there's like there's some science around this. And then I can go like take the leap of faith of like we attract the, you know, like the kind of more abstract stuff. Right. Um but I've really had to seek, really had to seek. Mm-hmm. Like everything has been about if I stop seeking, I stop growing and I get close to a drink. Yeah, 100%. If I at any point am feeling stagnant, I and I yeah, I don't believe that there's such a thing as being stagnant in the program. I think you're either you're either growing or you're moving closer to a drink. Yeah. And um and I've seen that you know, in others. I've been fortunate yeah. enough to be able to learn from other people's experiences yeah. in that. And so you know, for me, and I and I push this with all the women that I'm working with, that I'm like, you're not here to maintain. We don't get that luxury. Right. We have to constantly be inspiring ourselves and pushing ourselves and growing and learning new things, and then and then ideally teaching it to the people who come after us. Right. And if you're not doing that, then like, yeah, you you may stay sober. You see yeah. lots of people who stay sober who just yep. maintain. But they're not thriving. Right. And that's and I the whole goal. That, yeah, exactly. I think that we're here to thrive. Right. That is going to be our natural right. state of being if we don't get in the way of that process. And and, and that – so I think that's about – it's like learning that we're here to thrive, mm-hmm. believing that we're here to thrive, and then taking the, the, the action or figuring out – in my case, figuring out what the action is in order to thrive and, and seeking and pushing towards that. But I do think there's a lot of like – well, life just sucks and mm. that's just the way life is and life is hard and life is like, you it's know. It's out to get me. Yeah, like all these things that we tell ourselves and um, really flipping the script on that of like, 
yeah, that's one that's one choice you have to, of how you look at the world. And mm-hmm. I think when you're sober, it's like you just don't have any, especially the longer you stay sober, you just don't have any tolerance for pain anymore. Mm-hmm. You just don't. Like yeah. you're just like, get me, I'll do whatever. Yeah, whatever I'll I need to do right clown now. Clown suit, whatever needs to happen, yep. just tell me what to do. And so that willingness and knowing you don't have like an easy out mm-hmm. pushes you to actually work harder to create a thriving life because the opposite for you is something you have to feel every single day. Yeah. Like you don't ever have a break from that, a mm-hmm. mental like out and, you know, anesthesia. So whatever you're going to experience is what you're going to experience. You might as well <laughs> make it good. You may as well. Well, and that was one of, that was probably... The first barrier that I made it past in my journey of spirituality, I think, was just allowing myself to say that I wanted to be happy. That was something that was Mm. so hard for me to admit. And I carried (laughs) with me this idea that happy people are only happy because they're too stupid to know why they shouldn't be happy. Right. It was literally what I believed. No, I, I, I get that. And... It took a long time for me to even recognize that I carried that belief with me and that I was terrified of admitting that I wanted to be happy because then what if the people around me know that I want to be happy and then what if they fail and then they know that I'm failing. And now I'm a people pleaser. Exactly. (laughs) And it was just all of this, everything in my head was screaming at me to hold on to those beliefs. And um, and once I started to shed those and allow myself to adopt new beliefs. And I remember, you know, my, uh, my first sponsor had told me, you know, I came to her and I said, I think the higher, I think the universe is testing me. And she goes, well, why do you think that? And I said, I don't know, like bad things are happening. <laughs> she goes, well, does it make you happy to believe that the universe is testing uh, you? And I was like, no, not at all. She goes, cool, then don't believe it. Say it right now. Say my higher power doesn't test me. And I said, my higher power doesn't test me. She goes, great. You just changed a belief. Look at that. Yeah. And I was like, wait, it's that easy. She goes, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, oh my gosh, okay, cool. I have to say it a lot more times than that. My brain yeah. is slow. Usually, it's, <laughs> I think it's like between 10 and 20 times before. Yeah. There's a certain amount of seconds that if you repeat it over yep. and over again, like with an affirmation, yep. that it will actually start to develop into a be- like the start of a belief. Yeah. Which is like wonderful and terrifying. Yeah. Right? Because that means that other people can develop belief systems based on telling themselves that many times. Yeah. Good news is we can change it. Bad news, there's people out there creating all sorts of crazy stuff, but that's for another podcast. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I could talk about that for hours. (laughs) That's that's the scary part. So what, okay, two questions. Mm -hmm. One is what does the next year or like the next six months of Kim's sobriety look like? Like, what do you want it to look like? Mm-hmm. And what advice would you give to someone who is really struggling with, like wants to get better, but is really struggling with like this whole spiritual crap? Mm. So next six months or so of my sobriety, Honestly, I just hope that it continues moving exactly in the way that it is right now. I am 
at a very exciting time as far as my career, and I'm hopefully soon going to be transitioning out of, you know, my very practical property management job into something that I'm more passionate about, which is life coaching and really working with people one-on-one and creating something that I believe is meaningful and impactful and that I really, really care about and something that I think is utilizing, you know, all of my strengths and all of the experience that I have. And, um, you know, just continuing to be immersed in my 12-step program and, you know, the work that I'm doing with other women, a lot more growing, a lot more healing, you know, reading more books, more travel. I, we do retreats, um, you know, periodically. And um, I need a retreat. Oh, they're so good. I oh. I get I get so antsy if I, I you know I just got back from the one in Hawaii and oh. we're planning another one in the next few months. So sounds amazing. Yeah, it's definitely. I'll, I'll send you the info for it Please if you're interested in it at all. So it's going to be phenomenal. But honestly, I. I'm at a point in my life where I've already exceeded all of my expectations Mm. and what I ever thought that I would have or accomplish. And I'm now reaching a point where I'm starting to achieve things that I didn't even know I had goals for. So Mm. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's pretty much... It's really all I'm looking forward to, just more growth and more more connection with people because that's what makes me happy. And then to somebody who's struggling with the spirituality of things... My on my super honest advice is to not rush. I don't think that everybody needs to get it right away. I don't think that if you don't get it right away, you won't stay sober. I believe that everyone truly moves at their own pace with that and that the most important thing to do is accept yourself exactly where you are. Be super honest and transparent about your beliefs and what you think and what your questions are and to ask all of the questions that you want to ask and that, you know, whether, whether your belief is there or not, it doesn't change what is actually there. Mm, That's good. Yeah. And that base your beliefs on your own personal experiences and nothing else, not based on what people taught you, not based on what you think you're supposed to believe, you know, create your own experiences with it and that it's not going to be what you think. Yeah. But that it's so much better than I ever imagined. Yeah. I love that. It's mm-hmm. definitely not going to be what you think. Yeah. Whatever you think it is, it's not that. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's definitely been my experience. It's been my experience with all of yeah, sobriety, totally. all of life in totally. general. I've gotten to this phase and like, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> yeah. I don't even bother creating <laughs> yeah, expectations yeah. anymore because nope, I like, don't know what I'm walking into and it's much better that my way. My kid turned to me the other day and he's he's three. He's my questioner. And he asked me um, if I was a grown up. Oh, yeah. I have never been hit with such a challenging question <laughs> in my life. I looked at him and I was like, fuck. What do I tell this sweet, innocent child? Right. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I am technically considered grown up. Some you know? might say. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I, that I look like. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Physically, you know, age wise, you know, definitely. Yeah. But I just, it was such a funny experience of like, uh, you know, I, like the older I, you know, the older I get, the more sober I get. Like I don't know, I have no idea. I'm just yeah. at this point, everything I thought I knew is wrong. Everything, you know, like every time yeah. I think I know something, or I'm like, yeah, I know what's up. 
it changes. So at this point, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with the heart. I have no clue what's happening. And it's so freeing yeah. when you can just <laughs> right. say that. I have right. no idea, and it's no not idea. my responsibility to yeah. figure it out. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Although to him, maybe maybe it's my yeah yeah <laughs> little but, but I'll there's I'll, some responsibility yeah, yeah, exactly. there. I'll leave yes. that leave that. But uh, <laughs> for now, I'm just letting him telling him I'm a grown up. Well, it's been so nice having you here, and I think that you're going to do amazing things in this program and out of this program, and I just really love that you're a perfect example of someone who took the, like, whether it was hard or not, you took the, you know, oh, I like, I had a nice home and a nice family, and I'm just an alcoholic. Mm. Like, that's just (laughs) It's just this, it's the plain and simple of yeah. it. And you took that in stride. I think that's so valuable to people because I think there's so many people who are really confused mm-hmm. and uh, maybe get themselves into traumatic situations so that they have a, re- you know, like there, I think yeah. that there's so many different situations. And I always feel terrible talking to those people because I'm, my, you know, story is full of all sorts of weird stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I can't uh, affirm that in them, right? but I see it and mm-hmm. I get it. And I just, I hope you continue to share your story because we have plenty of us who, you know, have like all the trauma and blah, 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 blah. But like people need to talk about the fact that like, this is a brain disease. You can be born with it and nothing in your family went wrong. Like Absolutely. it's okay. You're still one of us. We still accept you. We still love you. And you don't have to like have any trauma. You don't have to be a me too victim. Like you don't have to, it's okay. We don't look at you differently. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a message we need to start talking about because I, I really am starting to feel like people who don't have trauma or people who haven't been, you know, sexually assaulted or whatever, they feel left out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's definitely something that it's so important to understand the different forms that it takes and that it doesn't discriminate and that it's not, necessarily it doesn't have a cause that you can right. pinpoint right and that's okay mm-hmm. that's okay so absolutely um, awesome well thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me and um, I, I think the coolest thing about this podcast and it, it's even just in the name uh, when I came into this experience I did not believe that people were capable of change until I got sober and that's why the second I saw the name I was just yes I, I love what you guys are doing here and what thank you're creating you. is absolutely beautiful and I'm thank so happy you. to be a part of it thank you thank you so much for coming in this podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.